Good evening to you. Welcome, welcome, welcome to Daring Dialogues. I'm your host tonight, Shantae Charles. I hope that you have been having a great and wonderful day. I want to say thank you to those of you who have been listening and thank you to the replay viewers who will catch this at a later time. Tonight we are focusing solely on um, our book, What is the Civil Rights Movement? I realized in reading last night that we have quite a bit to finish up. So I do want to um, read about three to four chapters tonight, and then I will open it up for conversation around the civil rights movement, and we'll be able to have um, a good discussion tonight, hopefully. And I'm probably going to read probably tonight about 15 to 20 minutes straight, and then I will open it up for a conversation because I do not have to end early because I don't have any adults to teach tonight. <laughs> so we do have a little bit more uh, leeway tonight as far as our discussion time. So again, we have been reading from what is the civil rights movement. And I really like this series because it simplifies things, but it also keeps the facts together and uh, gives you a lot of good information, things where if you want to explore a name, you'll have some names tonight. If you want to look at certain uh, movements, you'll be able to look those up and you want to add to your own knowledge, you can expand it from what we read tonight. Just like on last night, we began to talk about uh, Emmett Till and also the club from nowhere and Georgia Gilmore and how she was able to use the skills she already had um, as a cook to be a financial and economic powerhouse behind the scenes during the civil rights movement. So Georgia Gilmore is someone that I'm going to be uh, posting about on my Facebook page, Historical African American Images, to give people a little bit more insight into what I find about her. So tonight we're going to be reading about the lunch counter sit-ins. And then from there, we're going to talk about the SNCC rules of nonviolence. Then we're going to move into talking tonight about the Freedom Riders and also the Children's Crusade, or also known as the Birmingham Children's March. I'm going to talk a little bit about freedom songs and the importance and power of freedom songs. And then we're going to end with the March on Washington. So that's where I hope to get tonight. I know that's quite a bit. And I am ambitious, and I think that we're going to be able to get there. So, here we go. The Lunch Counter Sit-Ins The Montgomery bus boycott was a nonviolent protest. Many civil rights protesters first learned about nonviolence from Dr. King, and he was following the beliefs of an activist in India named Mahatma Gandhi. Gandhi said, when violence appears to do good, the good is only temporary. The evil it does is permanent. Now, if you've studied uh, Mahatma Gandhi, what you will find out in studying him, as I did, is that Mahatma Gandhi took his teachings from Christ. And uh, upon learning and reading about Christ, Mahatma Gandhi said, that the love that Christ was demonstrating was the essence of nonviolence. 
So when people say the nonviolent movement, just put the word love in there because that is exactly what he was talking about. And which is why King could take Gandhi's philosophy of nonviolence because it aligned with his own spiritual belief system. On February 1st, 1960, another kind of peaceful protest began. It too changed the way black people were treated in America. It started with four friends who were students at an all black college in Greensboro, North Carolina. A lot of interesting things have come out of Greensboro, by the way. They stood up for their rights by sitting down. Their local Woolworth store had a whites only lunch counter. Joseph McNeil was one of the students who started the protest. He said, to face this kind of experience and not challenge it meant we were part of the problem. That Monday afternoon, the four friends each purchased something in the store. Then they took seats at the lunch counter. I'm sorry, we don't serve colored here, the white waitress told them. McNeil and his friends had been inspired by Dr. King's sermons on nonviolent protest. They politely showed the waitress and the diner's manager receipts for what they'd bought. Some white patrons cursed at them, some encouraged them. The four men feared for their lives, but they held fast. They were not served that day, but they were not arrested either. They didn't go home until the store closed. Word of their protest traveled and the young men became known as the Greensboro Four. You can actually um, look them up and find more of their story. They, their sit-in launched a new era of student involvement in the civil rights movement. The next day, more students joined the Greensboro Four at Woolworth. The following day, over 60 students filled most of the seats in the diner. By the end of the week, hundreds of black and sympathetic white students crowded into lunch counters across the city. The action was compared to the Boston Tea Party that helped start the American Revolution. The Greensboro Coffee Party lasted six months and ended in victory. Woolworth desegregated its diners. At last, Joseph McNeil was able to sit down at the counter and eat a slice of apple pie. Greensboro was one of the first cities where sit-ins took place, but it wasn't the last. Young people around the country decided to have sit-ins in their own towns. One of those people was a college student in Nashville, Tennessee. His name was John Lewis. Along with fellow student Diane Nash and activist James Lawson, he helped form the Nashville Student Movement. And this is a rendering from the Greensboro Four that turned into the Greensboro Coffee Party. And here is a rendering of John Lewis as a young man. On February 13, 1960, John and the others led hundreds of black and white students in sit-ins around Nashville. They were refused service at every lunch counter. White managers turned off the lights and closed the diners around them. The students sat in the dark until the end of the day. After a few days of sit-ins, the police threatened to arrest the students. Angry white people beat and insult them. insulted them. Excuse me. Dr. King liked the young people's energy. He invited them to join his group, the Southern Christian Leadership Conference. But the students thought that the SCLC was too old fashioned. Instead, 
they started their own group. It was called the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, also known as SNCC for short. SNCC came up with a plan they called Jail No Bail. They got arrested and they filled up the jails until the police couldn't arrest any more people. Then SNCC marched to City Hall. The mayor of Nashville was waiting on the steps. He was afraid the sit-ins would lead to violence. Diane Nash asked him, do you recommend that lunch counters be desegregated? The mayor replied, yes. SNCC had succeeded in just three months. The group was a new force in the civil rights movement, one that would play a big part in future protests. Somebody say, hail to the college kids. So here are the SNCC rules of nonviolence. Before the first sit-in, John Lewis wrote up a list of nonviolent do's and don'ts to follow. As uh, MLK would say, organize, baby, organize. Strategize, baby, strategize. So here were his do-nots. Number one, do not strike back nor curse if abused. Now, how many people would fail that first rule? Just think about that. How many people would fail it? Rule number two, do not laugh out. Do not hold conversations with the floor walkers. Do not leave your seat until your leader has given you permission to do so. Do not block entrances to stores outside nor the aisles inside. Do show yourself friendly and courteous at all times. Do sit straight and always face the counter. Do report all serious incidents to your leader. Do refer information seekers to your leader in a polite manner. Do remember the teachings of Jesus Christ, Mahatma Gandhi, and Martin Luther King. Love and nonviolence is the way. May God bless each of you. For all the people who like to just exclude Christ out of the picture <laughs> of getting things done, these people didn't exclude him. Selah. On to Freedom Riders. On May 4th, 1961, a group of black and white students boarded buses for a new kind of protest called the Freedom Rides. The rides were organized by the Congress of Racial Equality, or CORE. There had been many complaints from black people who'd been blocked from using the bathrooms at bus stations across the South. The law said restrooms on national highways were for everyone. CORE teamed up with SNCC and the SCLC. They planned to ride two buses from Washington, D.C. to New Orleans, Louisiana, to draw attention to the problem. John Lewis of SNCC was one of the 13 original Freedom Riders. In South Carolina, he got off the bus and attempted to enter the white waiting room. A group of white youths in leather jackets blocked his way. After he told them it was against the law to stop him, they beat him up. Only after John was on his knees did the police tell the white men to go home. John got back on the bus and kept riding. The farther south the two buses went, the more dangerous it became. In Alabama, the police allowed a mob to attack the buses. One bus was set on fire. The riders escaped and went to the hospital, but the mob tried to burn it down too. 
the bus drivers refused to go any farther. The first freedom ride was over, but there were more to come. And may the tenacious arise. On May 17th, a group of 10 freedom riders rode south on a bus escorted by state police. They made it to Montgomery, Alabama, where the local police were supposed to protect them. Instead, the riders were attacked by a violent mob. Even then, the riders would not turn around. As one white freedom rider remembered, the black guys and girls were singing. They were so spirited and so unafraid. They were really prepared to risk their lives. Which leads us to another important aspect of the civil rights movement, the freedom songs. Singing played a big part in the civil rights movement. Traditional black spirituals and hymns sung by protesters were known as freedom songs. Now I have created an entire album of freedom songs. It's called Do Love Walk. And one day when I am no longer on this plane, somebody will still be singing those songs. So do your part in whatever you're supposed to be creating in this hour. Just a little plug. One song became the anthem of the movement, We Shall Overcome, started as a work song used by enslaved people in the South. They would work the fields while singing, I'll be all right someday. In 1901, a minister changed the words to I'll overcome someday. In 1945, striking South Carolina tobacco workers turned the word into we will overcome. Two of those workers introduced it to activists and musicians, including Zilphia Horton and Pete Seeger. They changed the lyrics to the way the song is sung today. I sang it with many different nationality groups, and it's so simple, and the idea is so sincere. This is an image of Zilphia Horton, who changed it to the version that we have today. What is your freedom song? They continued on to Mississippi. Mississippi was the most dangerous state in the South for civil rights protesters. There, they were arrested for disturbing the peace. They sang freedom songs and refused to eat. The rioters stayed in jail for several weeks, but the protests continued. Over the next seven months, more than 400 freedom riders rode buses south. In the end, the U.S. government agreed to enforce the law. Whites-only signs came down at interstate rest stops and bus stations across the south. Once again, nonviolent protest had made a difference. Now, the Children's Crusade. Bombingham was the terrible nickname for Birmingham, Alabama. The Klan regularly bombed the homes and churches of black citizens there. Dr. King would later call it the most segregated city in the United States, but that did not stop black people from demanding their civil rights. On the morning of May 2nd, 1963, Thousands of children ages 6 to 18 marched from the 16th Street Baptist Church into downtown Birmingham. They wanted to end segregation, not just in Birmingham, but across the nation. They called the march the Children's Crusade. A crusade is a fight for a cause that people believe in. I was told not to participate, Jesse Shepard recalled, but I was tired of the injustice. 
She was 16 at the time. Many parents were afraid for their children's safety. The city's commissioner for public safety was a white man named Bull Carter. At earlier civil rights protests in Birmingham, he'd had the police turn powerful fire hoses and brutal police dogs on the marchers. But all of those protesters had been grown-ups. Dr. King and other civil rights leaders believed that not even somebody as evil and wicked as Bull Connor would harm kids, but they were wrong. On the first day of the march, more than a thousand children were arrested. The youngest of them was only nine years old. They were jailed for as long as a week or more. But the next day, more students marched. They carried protest signs and sang freedom songs. Less than two blocks from the church, Bull Connor's men were waiting. Out came the fire hoses. 16-year-old Arnetta Streeter recalled that she had clung to a friend and the water just washed the two of us right down the street. But she was one of the lucky ones. I don't think I will ever forget that water. And when you would run, they had dogs waiting. I thank the Lord that they didn't put the dogs on me, she said 50 years later. So this would be some of you all's grandparents that experienced this, that would have been a part of the children's march. Other children were bitten, beaten, and bruised. Some parents fought back to protect, pro, to protect them. The news cameras caught it all for viewers at home. People sent bail money to free the children from jail. The White House urged the city of Birmingham to negotiate with Dr. King. So when we talk about <clears throat> what is happening in other countries, when we say pray for the Ukraine, let us not forget our own legacies of brutality that some leaders are taking their cue from and why some leaders, I won't mention no names, see us as a very hypocritical nation. And just leave that there. In the end, Birmingham agreed to desegregate public areas. Black people could now also work in downtown stores. But Dr. King called it the most magnificent victory for justice we've seen in the Deep South. The Klan held its own protest. A mass rally of Klansmen gathered in white hoods and robes. They burned large wooden crosses and threatened to kill Dr. King. They bombed his brother's house and the hotel where SCLC organizers and reporters often stayed. Violence broke out across the city. President Kennedy sent federal troops to keep the peace, but Dr. King told him more had to be done for civil rights. Because again, the spirit of January 6th can be traced all the way back. Live on TV. The civil rights movement grew because of television. It grew because of the technology of its day. In 1957, two thirds of all homes in the United States had a TV set. When the Little Rock Nine walked into school that first day, TV viewers were watching. They could hear the shouted insults. They could see the hatred and violence. For the first time, many white Americans saw what life was like for black people. 
The leaders of the civil rights movement immediately understood the power of television. In fact, they began to plan on it. As Dr. King later said, we are here to say to the white men that we will no longer let them use clubs on us in the dark corners. We're going to make them do it in the glaring light of television. That glaring light shocked many Americans. It also convinced many of them to join the push for equality. Unfortunately, much like the eight minute and 46 second video of George Floyd has done for our generation, television did for King's generation. On June 11, 1963, President Kennedy spoke on television to the American people. He said, this nation for all its hopes and all its boasts will not be fully free until all its citizens are free. He asked Congress to outlaw discrimination nationwide, but change was still slow to come. And finally, the March on Washington. By 1963, there was a clear divide in the civil rights movement. One side moved carefully while the other wanted immediate change. A political group called the Nation of Islam supported the idea of black nationalism. That meant creating a separate country for black people inside of the United States. One of the leaders of the movement was a man who was named Malcolm X. He had been born Malcolm Little. Little was the name given to his enslaved ancestors by white men, and he changed his last name to X to protest against slavery. Eventually, Malcolm X stopped believing in uh, the nation of Islam. He never stopped believing in black nationalism. He began practicing the Islamic religion. He changed his name to El-Hajj Malik El-Shabazz and began to favor more peaceful methods for gaining equality. Unfortunately, the Nation of Islam did not agree with his new ideas, and he was killed by members of that group in 1965. Now, the people, as we know now, who were convicted of, of his death have actually been exonerated. Malcolm X once famously said, we want freedom by any means necessary. This idea went against the nonviolent practices of Dr. King and groups like SNCC. Several civil rights groups joined together for a big protest to prove that nonviolence worked. They would go to the nation's capital, Washington, D.C., and demand equality. They called it the March on Washington for Jobs and Freedom. Organizers were determined to hold a peaceful event with both black and white marchers. This meant getting permits, buses, food, and bathrooms for 100,000 people. The march started at the Washington Monument and ended at the Lincoln Memorial. There would be music from famous singers and the leaders of the civil rights movement would speak on the memorial steps. On August 28th, trains, buses, and carpools arrived from all across the country. One person had traveled 700 miles to march to the march on roller skates. The crowd swelled from 100,000 expected marchers to 250,000, more than twice the expected number. It was a hot day. People dangled their feet in the pool between the two memorials. They sang songs and listened to speeches. Near the end of the day, Dr. King spoke some of the most famous words ever heard. His I Have a Dream speech was carried to the listeners at the march and to TVs and radios around the world. 
That phrase was sparked by Mahalia Jackson shouting out, tell him about the dream, Martin. I have a dream, he said, that my four little children will one day live in a nation where they will not be judged by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. He shared his belief that freedom would ring across the nation. All Americans would stand hand in hand and shout, free at last. The March on Washington was a great success, but for white supremacists, it was cause for violence. In Bombingham, that meant the death of four innocent children. On a peaceful Sunday morning at the all-black 16th Street Baptist Church, four girls were in the basement getting ready for choir practice. I heard something that sounded at first a little like thunder, and then this terrible noise and the windows came crashing in, one churchgoer later recalled. But it wasn't thunder, it was a bomb. The four choir girls were killed instantly by the blast. Addie Mae Collins, Carol Robertson, and Cynthia Wesley were 14 years old. Denise McNair was 11. People took to the streets to protest their deaths. Support for the civil rights movement grew. The time for change had come, but the South would not budge. Lawmakers fought for five long months. At last, more than a year after President Kennedy had called for an end to discrimination, the Civil Rights Act of 1964 became law. It said the country would no longer allow discrimination on the basis of race, sex, religion, color, or national origin. Now this is the law, but the enforcement of it, it still seems to be a problem. Next time on Monday, we will cover what happened during Freedom Summer, uh, which became the basis of the movie Mississippi Burning. We'll also talk about the, the uh, march, the Selma March on the Elma, uh, Edmund Pettus Bridge. We'll talk about changing times and the Black Panthers and the phrase Black Power. And then we'll talk about Martin's assassination and where it left the movement. I hope you have enjoyed tonight's reading on the civil rights movement. If you would like to respond to any parts of the message on tonight, any parts of the reading and give your uh, thoughts or insights, you can feel free to hit the camera on IG and I'll bring you in for discussion. If you are listening by Anchor FM, I want to thank you for your time and attention tonight. And I hope that you will join us on Monday for the conclusion of what is the civil rights movement. Take care and be well.